On October 2, 1997, Curtis Gamble's trial began in Fort Worth, Texas, after a 67-mile or 108-kilometer change of venue from Montague County, Texas. He was represented by Wichita Falls, Texas attorney Bruce Martin, and he was the first to be tried for the murder of Heather Rich, which took place a year ago at this point. In the eyes of Montague County District Attorney Tim Cole, convicting Curtis was going to be easier than convicting Josh, likely because Curtis was more cooperative and he gave details rather freely, naming himself as involved, whereas, you know, Josh was not saying anything. Initially, D.A. Cole planned to seek the death penalty against Curtis, but with the approval of Heather's family, he offered to forego capital punishment for Curtis in exchange for a guilty plea, which would result in a life sentence instead of death. He would abandon his story that Randy pulled the trigger and admit to shooting Heather, and he would testify against Josh Bagwell. D.A. Cole felt this deal was necessary because the case against Josh was the weakest of the three. He had invoked his right to remain silent, and his rich family had hired really expensive attorneys to defend him. A similar deal was accepted by Randy, plead guilty, get a guaranteed life sentence instead of facing the death penalty, and testify at Josh's trial. The deal was struck. Both agreed to this plea deal. On October 15, 1997, after a nearly two-week trial, Curtis Gamble was convicted and sentenced to life in prison with the eligibility for parole on October 31, 2026. So that's pretty much just three years away eligible for parole. Again, that's just eligible. Doesn't mean you'll get it, but he can still apply. The next trial on the docket was Josh's. While in custody, waiting to testify at Josh's upcoming trial as part of his plea deal, Curtis tried but failed to escape from jail. That's probably like the least shocking thing, because if you'll remember from part two, he was constantly in youth detention centers and psychiatric hospitals, and he escaped from all of them. So he just loves to get jailbroken. He told, he is in Curtis, told Cynthia McFadden, who was a really famous NBC TV personality. I don't know if she still is, but definitely in the 90s. He told Cynthia McFadden in a 1998 interview that he would continue to try and escape until he was successful. Quote, this is nothing because I'm mentally strong. Know what I'm saying? Can't keep me here forever. <laughs> oh, my God. Tyson. I'm mentally strong. Dyson's face, the shaking of your head. God. But yeah, Curtis is just such a tool. And you know who you know else? Been, you know what I mean? Mentally strong of a person in that situation? Not to tell people you plan to continue to break out, you dumb fuck. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? This is nothing because I'm you mentally guys hear strong. My know what I'm saying? Can't keep you here forever. You want to hear my rap tapes? Yeah, J Rock, go ahead. <laughs> offensive to j-rock i'm sorry it is j-rock did nothing like this sorry jamie <laughs> jamie mr jamie his mom always calls him jamie okay curtis tool huge tool yeah you, you know who else is a tool josh bagwell while remanded he also attempted to escape he failed he attempted he failed mm -hmm. he received white supremacy prison tattoos attempted to instigate a prison riot threatened to murder prison officers, attacked a police officer. And he bragged to everyone that, quote, there wasn't enough evidence to try me. So, tool, hmm. huge tool, tool, stupid tool. Yeah, wow, can't wait for his parole date. 
It's gonna look real fucking dumb with that white supremacist tattoo asking if he can come out because he's been rehabilitated. LOL. <laughs> I wonder how many he has. Oh, God. I hope uh, he has a lot, and I hope he just has an entire life ahead of him of getting his ass kicked. I feel like you're in Texas. <laughs> There's probably a few border country, border uh, state though. What? It's a border state though. Oh, There's like a lot touches of, Mexico. A lot of uh, M13s who aren't going to like that so much. Yeah. So I just feel like. There's also a lot of white supremacists. Yeah, there's probably, yeah. As we've briefly heard, Josh's family could afford expensive lawyers. They hired private criminal defense attorney John Zelpst, Barry Cousins, and a former Montague County District Attorney, Jack McGaffey. The guy's name was Barry Cousins? Barry Cousins. Woof. Hate to be his cousin. Hate to be his Barry. <laughs> okay all right well you came out thanks for that <laughs> that's how it feels listening to most of the jokes you make oh yeah <laughs> like curtis's trial josh's team wanted a change of venue as well but district judge roger towery denied that request so jury selection began in the county courthouse in montague texas uh, montague texas has a population of about 300 Teeny tiny. Yeah. Jury selection began on f February 3rd, 1998. Josh's attorneys took the role of highlighting Heather's own failings to paint the picture that Josh, quote, couldn't rape the willing. Disgusting quote. Their whole tactic here was just to make Heather sound like a slut. They were talking about her promiscuity, her flirting, everything. So it's just the disgusting you know she's asking for it mm -hmm. can't you can't rape someone who wants it and is asking for it yeah you know you know you knew it was fucking coming right yeah it's just so uh. ugh, disgusting i have goosebumps out of anger gail who is heather's mother had to be there and listen to this and she even had to be cross-examined about her daughter's Oh, whatever they're trying to say. If I was a say. lawyer, I'd try to move hell and fucking earth to make sure she doesn't have to sit in that stand. She did, and Ugh. she was required to acknowledge her daughter's smoking and promiscuity and potential bulimia and recreational drug use. Summing it up, uh, these disgusting attorneys on Josh's end asked her, quote, she was your perfect child. Well, she wasn't quite perfect, right? Assholes. <laughs> These pricks were doing everything they could to paint Heather in just the most unsavory light. And it's like, you're talking about a 16-year-old girl who was raped and murdered. What? I know that your client is on trial here and you're the defense attorney, but like, how do you sleep at night? Yeah, you're I don't. just the greasiest I don't... of the greased. Yeah, I know that like there's that whole like, like, and I always take, I always agree with this usually. Where it's I like, always agree with this usually. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Okay, well, <laughs> this is the case where I don't. Like, everyone deserves a trial. Like, everyone deserves representation and a good defense. A good defense. Yeah. This ain't it, though. No. This is... This is... This crosses a line. This because, is I mean, like gross. This there is... should be a rule where it's like, you know, if, how, if this isn't... This shouldn't be relevant 
just solely on the fact that you can't defend rape by saying that someone's promiscuous and therefore had it coming. Like, nope, it's can't. just not a defense. So I don't know why it's there. I mean, I know where they're going with it and they're painting a picture and they're going to try and convince the jury of that picture. But you know what? Like, they just have nothing else to go on. It's so akin to like, like crack dealing by a school to me now. Like, that's just that gross. Yes. So. They have nothing else to go on. They're like, let's go, let's go emotionally based mm -hmm. and we'll just say at, these easy, low hanging fruit type things. At a certain point, like the judge should, like if the judge's whole job is to sentence someone and then weigh the harm in release as part of the sentence for like the harm that it could cause a community, then I feel like it should be extended to the harm a trial, an ongoing trial can inflict on victims in the community by having dog shit fucking defense like that. Yeah. Like, so I mean, well, like she's asking for it. So yeah. Like you're causing harm. There, so out. I think the court should be responsible if they cause harm like that and to make sure that shit doesn't fly. But you know, Maybe that's too cerebral. <laughs> Maybe that's just too much. Definitely. It is too much. You're asking way too much. Also, this is 1998, okay? Yeah. One year away from a fucking wicked ass party, though, weren't we? <laughs> I hope it wasn't in a trailer. Mm. As we know, Curtis and Randy had agreed to a plea deal. Part of that deal was to take the stand and testify at Josh's trial. This was something that DA Cole was really leaning on because Josh's Josh's case was the weakest. His trial was going to be the hardest. So he's already worried about Josh's trial when both Curtis and Randy backed out of their plea bargains. Curtis was returning to his original claims of Randy killing Heather, and Randy was forfeiting only the benefits of his plea deal. So it didn't look like his testimony against Josh was for rewards of any kind. On February 10th, 1998, which is the seventh day of Josh's trial, against counsel's recommendation, Randy incriminated himself, setting aside a guaranteed 40-year imprisonment with the possibility of parole after 30 years in exchange for the possibility of capital punishment, all to strengthen his testimony against Josh. So... Randy said, quote, I wanted everyone to know I was telling the truth. I owed that to Heather and to her family, unquote. So he still testified for the prosecution. Mm -hmm. Still, he basically didn't do anything different other than just saying, I don't want the plea deal because I don't want it to seem like my testimony means less because I'm going to get something out of it. Okay. So he just said, it's a deal. It's just not a plea deal. I will do this on my word but you won't do anything for me but know? i don't want that guaranteed it's not a quid pro quo it's just a i'm gonna do this right yeah and his counsel was like um that's a bad idea <laughs> for yeah. you yeah and he was like don't care i just want to tell the truth and i don't want it to seem like i'm doing it for a reward Mm -hmm. So testifying for the prosecution, Randy said that not only was Josh fully aware of the plan to murder Heather, but he also carried her to the bridge, weighed her body down, and helped toss her into the creek, which we heard in his uh, statement in part two, mm -hmm. uh, that they all helped move her body to the bridge and lead her against the guardrail. 
And then after she was murdered, it was, he's saying it was Josh that took a shoelace from Heather's shoe and tied a rock to it and helped throw her over. Mm -hmm. Uh, Zelpst, who is the one attorney. Attorney Zelps. Yeah, Attorney Zelpst, Josh's attorney, cross um, examined. Also, a Scooby Doo exclamation. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like Zelpst. <laughs> Let in with that. Zelpst cross examination was described as relentless in his attempts to portray Randy as a quote, lying, scheming, drug abusing, jealous killer who was angry at Heather for having sex with his drinking buddies, then rejecting him by screaming in her sleep while he fondled her. Unquote. Zelp succeeded in having Randy acknowledge that Josh did not explicitly agree to kill Heather, nor did he carry Heather that night. DA Cole conducted redirect examination on Randy and brought out the, quote, legally significant facts of Josh's awareness of Curtis's intent to kill and Josh's assistance in disposing of the body and obscuring Heather's blood on the bridge. All of that is basically saying everyone's guilty. <laughs> Mm-hmm. The final witness for February 10th, um, still in Josh's trial here, was a military policeman who guarded Curtis during his 1992 tenure in Oklahoma Youth Detention Center. In the prosecution's effort to refute Josh's claims that Randy was the shooter, testimony was heard that during his time incarcerated at this youth detention center, Curtis allegedly claimed that, quote, his ultimate fantasy was to commit a crime that would shock the nation, to kidnap and rape a beautiful young girl, then blow her head off, unquote. So Ew. that is what a guard, uh, a military policeman, heard Curtis say while he was in a youth detention center. That's fucked. And that was to show Curtis likely is the one that murdered Heather. And... It's not true when Curtis says, and Josh, because Curtis and Josh obviously made this unspoken pact, basically, that mm -hmm. they're just going to keep saying Randy is the shooter. Yeah. Josh took the witness stand uh, on February. Oh, my God. I forgot about this part. It's my favorite because it's so stupid. Josh took the witness stand on February 11th. Described as seemingly reading from a script, Josh refuted Randy's testimony According to Josh, it was Randy who unexpectedly killed Heather. Yet while Josh was recalling the early hours of October 3rd, 96, in the first person present tense, he said, I see Curtis, or I mean, excuse me, I see Randy lowering the gun. <laughs> oh, you, you know what? <sighs> I mean, good, but wow. So, you know, I... you. Technical term is Freudian slip. <laughs> Applicable term is Deus Mechna. God intervened on that one. Right. And was like, you're just going to be a complete fucking asshole up here and fuck this up even though you're reading. Basically reading <laughs> from a script. But that's what... Also, it like, imagine being a jury there and just how easy you feel like you have it at this point when like this guy comes up with a Curtis. script. Yeah. And then, and then still says Curtis, I'd be like, must, what are we here for anymore? Like, can we just 10 minutes? You won't even have to buy us lunch, judge. We'll just <laughs> end back. Right? Yeah. 
You, yeah, 10 minutes, you'd think. Mm-hmm. On February 17th, 98, after over seven hours of deliberation. You're fucking kidding. Yep, you walked right into that one. Yeah. Se- over seven hours of deliberation, the jury found Josh Bagwell guilty of capital murder and conspiracy to commit capital murder. Capital murder earned Josh an automatic sentence of life imprisonment. For the conspiracy charge, the jury jury deliberated for three hours before recommending a concurrent 99-year sentence because of the crime's brutality. A fine of $10,000 was also imposed with the conspiracy conviction. Uh, It is 1998. What is $10,000 equivalent to today, October 2023? Uh, $18,000. Yes. Really? $18,882.76. Nice. So, like, closer uh, to 19, but yeah, it's... Yeah, I was, I was off by almost like 18... Okay. It, wow, I was going to say 18882. <laughs> Silly. Sharice, who is Josh's mother, believed Randy had received a secret deal. Furiously accused D.A. Cole of prosecutorial misconduct and blamed the jury for, quote, not following the judge's instructions. She then went on to ask for the jury's manager. Ha. And the jury turned around and turned back around and said, here we are. What do you want? <laughs> I am manager. <laughs> we are management. You ever see that video of someone yelling at this person behind the desk like, behind the register and she's like can i talk to your manager and then she does the like oh yeah for sure one second and she like dips down (laughs) below the counter dips back up and goes how can i help you oh i haven't (laughs) but that would feel pretty good yeah zelps said he would appeal the jury's decision and request a new trial because everyone's disgruntled Mm mm-hmm Charisse's fury wasn't completely unfounded. Exaggerated and misunderstood, yes, but not unfounded. D.A. Cole absolutely treated Randy differently than Curtis and Josh. It appears it was because Randy was the weakest link, so to speak, which is, I think, the exact terms we used in part one or two. Yeah, it was. (laughs) He was more forthcoming than Josh and Curtis. He appeared more reliable or at least more truthful. He was seemingly remorseful, all of which played in favor of D.A. Cole's potential to seal conviction, especially against Josh. So it makes sense that if he was to attach himself to one of the accused to achieve this goal, it would be Randy. Cole says that Randy never denied his role in the crime. He didn't make excuses for what he had done. He claimed he didn't know how to stop what was happening when they reached the bridge because he was afraid of Curtis, who yielded the shotgun, and he constantly displayed remorse, claiming to be haunted by the fact that he couldn't save her or stop the murder. I roll, I roll, I roll. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, I roll, I roll, I roll. Uh, D.A. Cole is one of the people I was talking about who just seems to kind of have a soft spot for Randy for some reason. Like Curtis, Randy took a plea deal. 
He accepted a guaranteed 40-year imprisonment with the possibility of parole after 30 years in exchange for a guilty plea and testimony against Josh. As DA Cole prepared to bring Curtis and Josh to trial, he and his investigator began to visit Randy in jail to establish a rapport and glean more information before he testified for the prosecution. They mostly sat in the sheriff's private office to talk, and sometimes Cole brought Randy cheeseburgers from a local burger stand. Well, we're Canadian. We all know what we're thinking here. I didn't even realize it till I said it out loud. But yeah. like Randy and his cheeseburgers and, we and the we cheeseburgers just, again, Randy. Yeah, we just made a J Rock joke. Like oh my wow. goodness. Yeah. Trailer Park Boys over here. <laughs> oh my god, okay. I almost started laughing midway through saying that. But yeah, Cole, <laughs> he's bringing Randy cheeseburgers from a local burger stand. Once, with his investigator at the wheel, D.A. Cole even took Randy, who was shackled because he is a prisoner, or is being held, I guess, he's in custody, for a drive around the co- the county. Almost said the country. <laughs> <laughs> for a drive around the county. When they met, they discussed Randy's upbringing and how they both grew up playing football in small towns, but they mostly talked about the case in the upcoming trials. So, yes, D.A. Cole definitely spent a lot more time with Randy. And so, yeah, in comparison to Curtis and Josh, Randy was treated different for sure. Sharice was right about that, but there wasn't a secret deal happening or anything like that. So Sharice was wrong there. Randy's trial was scheduled to begin in May 1998, three months after Josh's. But because anticipation for Randy's trial drew significant national media attention, it was postponed. Numerous media outlets, personalities, television. I definitely meant to write television personalities <laughs> question mark um, and interviewers descended upon Warica, oklahoma and montague texas so it was decided moving the trial was best just so it didn't take place in the midst of the media frenzy especially since oh my god those just... especially since those involved were giving interviews there's just something about the 90s and just like oh yeah trial cases just being the thing mm-hmm it's wild. They're just, they're the worst iteration of media circus that I think of. If I'm thinking like by decade, I think 90s. the night, the, the like late nineties was when it got just like, okay, you guys need to fucking stop. Just, yeah. In general, putting stuff on TV for like that sort of shock value. Yeah. Sharice and Josh did a televised, they'll tell <laughs> My God. Sharice and Josh did a televised interview at the jail he was being held in, where Sharice alleged that her son was being framed. Randy reiterated his trial testimony on national television. It felt like the only people staying out of the media's way was Heather's family. Gail declined paid interview offers. She wasn't interested in sitting down with TV personnel and rehashing Josh's and Curtis's trials, talking about Randy's upcoming trial, or answering the same questions over and over. Surprisingly, Gail and Dwayne did sit down with someone, though, to hear what they had to say. In advance of his trial, Randy asked Heather's parents if he could meet with them. D.A. Cole sat in on this meeting, too. And Randy looked his ex-girlfriend's parents in the eyes and choked out a brief apology before, quote, breaking down and asking for their forgiveness. To Randy, Dwayne said, quote, At one time, 
I could have killed all three of you with my bare hands. Being a Christian, I don't have hate in my heart for you. Unquote. Gail agreed with her husband, telling Randy that she could see his remorse was sincere and that it would help her and Dwayne to heal. She said that she wanted to write to him and asked if she could send him Heather's photo and a Bible. Dwayne even thanked Randy for testifying against Josh and for meeting with them. Gail accepted Randy's apology for the pain he caused her family. She said she couldn't accept it for Heather's murder, as that was up to Heather. Gail believed that Randy had told the truth about what happened that night, especially since in doing so, he gave up his plea deal, which opened up the possibility of him being sentenced to death. And Randy just said that it was the right thing to do. So Randy even declined another plea deal, refusing to say that he had murdered Heather. Obviously, he would decline that if he didn't. DA Tim Cole ultimately prosecuted Randy for and secured a conviction of capital murder. Randy was found guilty on August 25th, 1998, and he was automatically sentenced to life in prison on August 27th, 1998, 1998. So even though he gave up his plea deal, he still wasn't sentenced to death. He's eligible for parole on November 20th, 2036. Randy intended to appeal his conviction, telling the Times Record News, quote, you can look it up in the dictionary, and murder says to take someone's life, and I didn't do that, unquote. DA Tim Cole and Gail Rich both regret that Randy received such a long sentence, describing him as, quote, the teenager who, late in the game, found the strength of character to own up to his crime and paid for it dearly. Really something that even Gail feels sorry for Randy. That's really something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Her heart is so big, but it really is too bad for him and for Heather that he didn't have the resolve and integrity on the night Heather was murdered because then four teenagers' lives could have been completely different. Yeah. Hindsight. Shit like that kind of makes me feel like, all right, well, I'm not shedding a tear over your long sentence. Me neither. <laughs> Hindsight's 2020. It's easy to speak retrospectively, like to be like, like I oh, think I would have done it different. I'm, I, I flock him into responsible for murder sorry me too also i have to say it nothing says i'm sorry and i'm ready to accept my punishment like i'm gonna appeal (laughs) (laughs) gail's a much bigger and stronger person than i am i don't think i could ever forgive someone like randy Mm -mm. but you know they are her and Dwayne are christian they are I mean, but like we're not in her shoes. We're not in his shoes. God knows what you need to do to be able to go on day to day after your daughter is taken. Yeah, their opinion matters more. So, you know, I'll just show deference to that just personally. Mm -hmm. In 1998, Dwayne filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Carolyn Beaver and the hardware store, alleging that she, quote, negligently delivered and or sold the ammunition to Josh Bagwell and or Curtis Gamble, and that Beaver's negligence was the proximate cause of Heather Rich's death, unquote. The United States District Court for the Western District of Oklahoma denied Dwayne's motion for partial summary judgment on May 13, 99, saying that Oklahoma statutes Title 21, subsection 1272 did not define the shotgun ammunition as an offensive weapon and that Carolyn Beaver did not violate any statute subsections by selling it to Josh Bagwell, which 
Dwayne, I'm sorry for your loss. This is absolutely horrible, but I it's not Carolyn's fault. It's no, it's not. And also, like, that was such a losing battle. Yeah. Going against that, like, you didn't really have a chance on that one. Eight days later, the same court granted Carolyn Beaver's motion for summary judgment, finding that, quote, there was no evidence that Beaver should have foreseen that Bagwell and Gamble would use the ammunition to murder Heather Rich and that the criminal act of murder was the supervening cause of Heather Rich's death. So, it, yeah. Doesn't matter if that ammunition was sold to them or not. They were going to get rid of her one way or another. Yeah. Dwayne Rich appealed to the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, which concurred with the district court affirming that the summary judgment. They were like, mm, sorry. Again, this is a horrible thing that happened to you and your family and to Heather, but it's not Carolyn's fault. Randy followed through on his promise to appeal, filing with the Second Court of Appeals of Texas. He contended that his attorney was ineffective, both failing to, quote, request an instruction on the lesser-included offense of murder and failing to notice that the, quote, trial court's application paragraph at the guilt-innocence phase of the trial was erroneous. On October 14, 1999, the state overruled each of Randy's points and reaffirmed the trial's conclusion. They're like, appeal denied. Mm -hmm. Josh Bagwell filed an appeal as well on November 22nd, 2000, also with the Second Court of Appeals of Texas. The appeal was a petition for writ of habeas corpus. Um, basically, this means that Josh wants to be brought before a judge or into the court, and he should be released unless uh, lawful grounds are shown for his detention which is like yeah you you were found guilty yeah what okay all right so it is as ridiculous as i fucking thought it was okay gotcha <laughs> he was arguing that because heather was unconscious when taken to belknap creek she couldn't move and if unable to move she therefore had no movements to restrain and restraint of the victim is an integral component of kidnapping therefore because the texas penal code defines capital murder as quote a level of murder that requires a kidnapping component Josh Bagwell could not be guilty of the level of murder for which he was convicted. That's the stupidest fucking argument I've ever heard solely on the fact that she continuously woke up from conscious uh, unconsciousness. Exactly. There's no way to prove that she was unconscious the whole time. Yeah. And there's no way to prove that she wasn't. But still, still these lawyers are getting paid a big buck to be some fucking idiot. <laughs> the appeal. It's funny because they're different lawyers. The appeal blamed Josh's 1998 lawyers for failing to demonstrate this incongruity before the court, and therefore the imprisonment was a rights violation. If I was the judge, I'd just be like, get the fuck out of here. You're stinking up the place. And it's verbatim what he said. You're stinking up the place. This appeal's rejected. Stamped like January 31st, 2001. <laughs> when Curtis refused to stick with the plea deal... And changed his testimony in Josh's trial, he was charged with conspiracy to commit capital murder. 
In January 2002, Curtis Gamble and Josh Bagwell were transferred from state prison to the Montague County Jail so that Curtis could be tried for conspiracy to commit murder. They both were transferred because I guess Josh is going to testify or had to be a witness. I'm not sure. But they were both transferred together. I just, sorry, it's, I can't believe it's Montague County and we're not calling it Count Montague. <laughs> anyway. I'm sorry that you have to live with that. It's it's going to be a long slog this. for this, but it's okay. I'll endure. Out of all of the things to not be able to believe in this story, <laughs> it's This that. is it. This is the hill I'm dying on. So D.A. Cole tried him and Curtis received an additional life sentence on January 16th, 2002. So second consecutive life imprisonment. In the late hours of January 28th, 2002, Josh Bagwell, Curtis Gamble, and two other inmates, Charles Wilson Jordan and Crystal Gale, Crystal Gale Soto, overpowered two guards by attacking them with homemade knives and escaped the Montague County, Texas jail in a guard's 2001 Geo Chevrolet tracker. The four killers eluded the FBI... U.S. Marshals, the Texas Rangers, Oklahoma's SBI, and Oklahoma Highway Patrol for nine days. That's a long-ass time for the amount of manpower that's after them. There was over 200 officers involved. Yeah. And they eluded for nine days. Gail, uh, Heather's mother, was dismayed. She was in total shock that four people convicted of capital murder could escape jail and stay free for days. She was horrified that they would kill again because they have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. The jailbreak marked the first time in District Attorney Tim Cole's life that he had ever armed himself. He kept a forty caliber pistol with him while they were on the loose because he had prosecuted all of them. So he was like, oh, my God, this is horrifying. Yeah, what a nightmare. On the 10th day of evading capture, February 7th, officers caught up to the four at a gas station in Ardmore, Oklahoma. And this gas station was called Paul's Place. That checks out. That's exactly what I had imagined it to be. Yep. Charles Jordan and Crystal Soto were captured outside the convenience store of the gas station without incident, but Josh and Curtis held officers at bay for six hours by holding the 70-year-old owner hostage with a stolen 22 caliber firearm. Both surrendered at 4.30 a.m. while negotiating with FBI agents. Hmm. After their capture, both men were held in the Carter County... Carter, or the, the jail in Carter County, Oklahoma. I don't know what I wrote there. <laughs> On August 15th, Carter County prosecutors dismissed the charges against Josh and Curtis without prejudice, citing the complicated process of extradition to Oklahoma for trial. Uh, they had charged, because they had escaped and stuff, they had charged them with kidnapping, conspiracy to commit first degree robbery, felonious. Possession of a firearm, unauthorized use of a motor vehicle, and being a fugitive from justice. So, they were like, I mean, yeah, all these check out, but they're already in prison for life. We'll just dismiss these for now. Okay, so they just basically went, you know, taxpayer money doesn't need to be spent on these yeah. assholes. 
yeah, that's probably exactly what these two want to get out of jail again, just to be able to sit in a courtroom for a while. So fuck this, put them back. Mm-hmm. In February 2002, Sharice, Josh's mother, sought out Curtis's brother, Rick Gamble, to assist her in helping the two felons escape again. Let's not forget Sharice was an attorney. This woman was an attorney. Mm-hmm. And this is how she's behaving. She asked Rick for, quote, firearms, cell phones, and maps to help the two felons after their planned escape from the Carter County Jail. Rick Gamble actually went to the police about Sharice's request and cooperated with them to collect evidence. This allowed the police to interfere with Sharice's attempt to smuggle hacksaw blades hidden inside two Bibles to Josh and Curtis. She was allowed to visit them because she was apparently acting as Josh's attorney or acting as part of his counsel. I'm not sure, but unbelievable, ridiculous. Sharice uh, was also put under surveillance by, by police. And when she left the jail, she immediately went to Walmart, bought more blades, and apparently wrapped them in a balloon and successfully snuck them past prison officers who believed she hid them inside a, quote, body cavity. Now, it just oh. says blades. I don't know. I assume that's not hacksaw blade because I don't know <laughs> uh, what that looks like and how that's going anywhere. But she definitely bought blades of some sort and then hid them in a body cavity. Yeah, I got, you know what? Surprisingly, I got nothing to that. <laughs> Christ. Sharice was arrested in Terrell, Oklahoma on February 27th, 2002. And the next day she was charged with, quote, conspiring to commit a felony and use of a firearm during the commission of a felony. Her bail was set at $200,000. Surprisingly low. It's equivalent to what? October 2023. And this is from February 2002. $200,000. dollars and. $80,000. Oh, you are doing so well. It's equivalent to $342,000. Oh. On August 16th, she pleaded guilty to conspiracy to assist in an escape and conspiracy to commit a felony with a firearm. She was sentenced to 20 years in prison with 12 years deferred. Now, I had assumed that suspended sentences... And deferred sentences were the same because Mm -hmm. you get probation instead of jail time. But that's like the only similarity. According to Oklahoma Legal Group, a deferred sentence occurs when a person pleads guilty to a crime. But instead of accepting the guilty plea and convicting the defendant, the judge delays their judgment. So instead of the judge, instead, the judge orders probation and gives the defendant a chance to comply with all of the terms of their probationary term before rendering judgment. If a person does not stick to the terms of their probation, the prosecutor will file a motion to accelerate sentencing. The judge may then cut probation short, accept the guilty plea, and sentence the person to jail or prison. The defendant does not get credit for probation, and a sentencing is eligible for the full sentence allowed by law. However, if the defendant does successfully complete probation, their plea is changed from guilty to not guilty, and the judge dismisses the case entirely. Entirely. This is very important because it means the defendant is not convicted of the crime, so there's no record of it. 
that was a little I don't like that. with Brianna. I don't I don't like that. Just she did this, she should go to fucking jail for this shit. Yeah. You know what? Like, oh, what is this fucking soft shit that they're dole, doling out in this? I thought you guys were fucking ruthless. <laughs> you fucking namby pamby over there. Namby pamby? Namby pamby. <laughs> oh, like, oh, you know, let's give this lady who tried to smuggle like a bunch of shit to help these people escape prison again. Let's just let's just give her a chance, guys. Oh, fuck that. Put her in prison. <laughs> Don't do this. Set an example. Deferred sentence versus suspended sentence yeah not even don't not even like just that you don't have to go to prison here's your probation but you don't have to go to prison here's your probation and the potential for this to never have existed mm -hmm. anyway on april 14th 2006 josh bagwell's lawyers elevated their appeal to the united states district court for the northern district of texas the following day a united states magistrate judge acknowledged that Quote, though Bagwell was a Cretan, the petition had merit and would be considered by the federal court, unquote. Mm -hmm. In an interview with the Duncan Banner and in his assurances to Montague County residents, the county district attorney said that, quote, no matter what happens next, Mr. Bagwell is not going to be getting out of prison, unquote. To bolster his statement, the DA explained that he had never filed Bagwell's indictment for escaping custody in 2002, quote, which could be done if necessary. So remember in 2002 and he escaped prison for nine days, mm -hmm. 10 days, technically. Yeah. They just decided to dismiss those without prejudice. Yeah. They could always bring him back if they had to. Oh. So that guy isn't going anywhere ever. Yeah. Denise Horner, who is Randy Wood's cousin, began a campaign in the late 2000s for a commutation of his murder, capital murder sentence. The basically is just saying the penalty should be lessened in severity, duration, or both. Former DA Tim Cole had agreed to help Denise because he was regretful that he hadn't tried Randy of conspiracy to commit capital murder instead of straight up capital murder. In the late 2000s, Tim Cole was former DA because he had resigned in 2006 following his arrest for driving under the influence that incurred a one-year deferred sentence. Huh? Now we know what deferred means. <laughs> three days of community service and a fine of $1,148. So uh, ultimately in 2011, the sheriff, district judge, and current district attorney were unwilling to recommend a reduction of sentence. So it looks like Randy had some good luck, though, because even though they were like, listen, we are not going to lessen your sentence, the duration, nothing. Um, in October 2016, he married a woman named Larissa Huia, Huia from Auckland, New Zealand. She first saw Randy on a TV documentary in 2014 and was, quote, horrified by his lengthy sentence and wrote him a letter to, quote, tell him there's one person in this world that doesn't think he's a bad person. Huh. By August 2018, Larissa was lobbying to overturn state laws that allowed minors to be tried as adults. Quote, although my motivation is Randy, this is not about one person. This is about as many as 1,700 inmates in Texas 
who were incarcerated as juveniles to prison terms New Zealand would never see, even for adults. Common theme here is everyone thinks Randy's sentence was too harsh. Josh Bagwell was technically a minor at the time, too, and it's agreed upon that he didn't pull the trigger either, so does he deserve a shorter sentence, too? Or just Randy because he says he's sorry and has shown remorse. After all, it isn't just about Randy, right? It's about all juveniles. Maybe I'm arguing semantics, but at the end of the day, both Randy and Josh participated in a heinous crime. Randy was offered a plea deal where he had the chance at a lesser sentence and he backed out of it. So he's eligible for parole on November 20th, 2036. So if he's truly remorseful, he can display that to the parole board when he applies. And if they buy it and they agree that he's served his time, then he'll get paroled. That's what I have to say about that. Josh Bagwell will become eligible for parole on November 28th, 2036. Curtis Gamble is eligible for parole on October 31st, 2026. So, well, I mean, I guess not since he has concurrent life sentences. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just about ready to wrap this up and I'll do what I usually do when we discuss horrible cases like this and bring it back to Heather and her family. During the trials, Gail was in court every day wearing Heather's signet ring the ring that Heather was wearing when she died that helped to identify her. And Gail wore it on a gold chain around her neck. And she also carried the blue fleece jacket with her that Heather was wearing when she was murdered. Gail and Dwayne divorced after the murder and moved away from Warika because there are just too many, you know, really nice, lovely memories that started to mix and blend with the pain of their loss. And it was just too much to deal with. So they left and they ultimately divorced. Dwayne remarried in 2001 to a lady named Connie and Gail remarried in 2000 to a man named Jim. Belknap Creek, where Heather's body was abandoned, haunted Gail in her nightmares she would see Heather lying in the creek, alive, begging for help. Gail is only a few feet away, standing in the cold water. She holds up her hands, desperately reaching for her daughter, but she can never reach her. Heather is always too far away. This nightmare haunted Gail until her passing. Sadly, she died of a brain tumor on January 10th, 2015, at just 60 years old. Dwayne died three months prior on September 11th, 2014, at just 63 years old. They were both so young, but at least now they have been reunited with their beloved daughter and Gail can finally reach Heather. Mm. And that concludes the really sad and horrific and gruesome and devastating tale, true crime story of the murder of heather rich Mm -hmm. fuck those kids man yeah all of them yeah except for heather obviously oh well no three the three grubs the three fucking grubs obviously not fuck heather yeah uh it's just sad all of it is just sad and then you have her parents who died so young and like i wouldn't be surprised at all if it was just an accumulation of the stress and 
yeah everything their life their life yeah grief can really fuck up your health it's just really sad because i don't know the how you know burns and whatever can affect you but Dwayne had been in that terrible accident and he had those burns all over his body so i don't know if there's complications from that Mm -hmm. but he's only 63 and then i just think it's really sad that gail is like haunted by these nightmares Mm -hmm. her whole life yeah she's got significant she has significant trauma from what happened yes obviously and also i mean like that last interaction with her kid too on top of all of that being a a, like a negative side of dealing with a teenager right right so i mean that's it's tragic that's fucking awful so so sorry that they went out at such a young age 60 and 63 years old and the fact that it's just three months apart yeah really sad but they weren't even married anymore they were living totally separate lives but Mm -hmm. just all around sad Mm -hmm. and i don't know that's it people wanted a true crime case there you go thanks for your patience while we've been mia but mm-hmm. hopefully you enjoyed a little mini series that you can binge. Really sad story, but good story to tell though. Good story to tell. Uh lots of things I think in this story, messages to take away, things to consider. Um, certainly a case that makes you think about where you would stand on issues and all kinds of stuff like that. So yeah, good story to tell. Really sad, but also there's Heather had three brothers now who don't have a sister or parents. Mm-hmm. Just three brothers out there who are like, okay. Yeah. Tragic life. So I hope her three brothers are doing well. Hopefully they have little families of their own and they just have their own little community. Yeah. Um, yeah. All the sources we used are on our website. Uh, all other links that are relevant are in the show notes or the episode description or whatever it's called. And... Yeah, I'm tired. This was a long, a lot of time to record. My mouth's dry. I'm exhausted. And thanks for tuning in. And we'll catch you on the dark side. Bye. Bye.